welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. Here is the second part of my conversation with Jono Niklas, the founder of Wellbeing Outfit, a leading provider of mental health and well-being programs. Please enjoy. Once I understand that bridge, I therefore can come up with creative concrete solutions that in almost all circumstances costs you in material terms very, very little. But the outsized benefits for your people are enormous and therefore you get high engagement, high well-being, high performance. And that's, by the way, why I'm so excited around this. This, again, ties to at least my understanding of inclusive leadership, right? That we we spend time thinking about what are the inclusive spaces we need to build now, right? And what features do they need to have? And that means that we simply need to challenge our own mental models and assumptions. It's not always, like you said, more costly or so. It's just It, it just changes what we associate with the office, right? <laughs> or being in the office. It's it's just about breaking some of those habits of, of association. And being very intentional, using data, using data to segment, to understand what might be really important. So it's just been Halloween and I was talking to a leader and I was like, "Can I, I'm going to make you a bet. You're like, what's that? I was like, no one's going to turn up in the office with kids between the age of five and 12 on Monday. <laughs> and he's like, why? How do you know that? I was making a couple of weeks ago. He was like, because every 10-year-old is going to want to do trick-or-treating and they're going to want to do it at 5 to 5.30 and every parent is going to know their kids are going to be on a sugar rush <laughs> and they're going to be out of control by 7 p.m. and they don't want to be at the office that day if they can leave at 4.30 to take the kids. And, and the pause was, he was like, I didn't even know it was Halloween. I was like, so that's the issue. Your experience that's- is not their experience. You can just quickly survey five parents. <laughs> They'll tell you that it's going to be a disastrous Monday and that if they could stay home, that it would be better. It would lower family conflict. They would get their kids settled. They'll have a great experience. And he went, Okay. And then he contacted me as they went, no one was in the office. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So they're the sorts of things when you kind of get into that space, you don't need a lot of data, York. You can make some pretty good assumptions by putting yourself in the head of, you know, your people and getting them to share it and they will share what is actually driving them far more easily because you've been thoughtful. And this is actually a whole different strand of conversation around the use of what is data, right? And how do we use it? Because oftentimes we have the data, we can actually, but do we interpret it? Do we, do we, what frame of interpretation do we put over it? And, and that is not in the data. That's actually a deeper level of understanding of what, what are people facing? So we need to under, we need to do exactly what you said, you know, be curious, um, ask a few people. Um, don't assume, right? And and then think about okay, what what are the implications of what I'm learning? Be curious. I think what I've noticed consulting to big organisations, York, is they're obsessed with the collection of data, and they're obsessed with the collection of quantitative data that's representative, right? So you've got a company of say a thousand people, and you know they go, oh, we need a survey that at least gets you know forty to sixty response rate, and then so they spend. I don't know, maybe a month doing a campaign, telling people the data's coming. 
Then they spend another two weeks breaking down the data because they've now got to break it down by department. And they have no working hypothesis for that data. Right. So if you're a scientist, you don't just randomly go out in the world and collect data. You have a working hypothesis. The working hypothesis is that people between the ages of 25 and 45 with kids under the age of 10 will have a different relationship to the office than people age 45 and over who have a simpler domestic life. That's a hypothesis. It could be right or wrong. Then you go out and you get data and you go, actually, let's test that hypothesis to see whether you're right or wrong and what that means. What we do in corporates, which I find fascinating, is you reverse that whole process. You collect endless amounts of data with no hypothesis. <laughs> and then the game is to see whether a measurement's gone up or down. Yeah, and you go, oh, engagement's up by three points. So I was like, what does that mean? I don't know. It just is good because <laughs> it has a little green arrow that goes up. I was like, we're like kind of kindergartens, like, are there more green arrows than red arrows? I was like, that is really kind of not the driver, right? And so people get tired of giving you data, but also we massively overcomplicate the process when you would say, actually, if I have a working hypothesis, what you again you do in science is you look for an intervention against that data that has very, very high upside and zero downside cost. And so you go, okay, if I could find that intervention point, I don't need a lot of data to act because if I'm wrong, there's no cost. If I'm right, there's a massive upside. So I might as well take a take a bet. And so you'll use my example of putting in place a bunch of tables in school holidays and setting up some iPads for kids and creating a, a, a kind of a kids club because – What's the hypothesis? The hypothesis is that will be of really good benefit for parents and actually no one else in the workforce will particularly care. And we have dead office space because it's not being used. Okay, you can test that for one school holidays. If none of those parents bring their kids in, it was a dumb idea and you don't do it again. If you get 50 kids come in and it turns out as a really awesome thing, then you go, I've learned something, right? And the, my kind of part of it when I'm, I, I talk about this idea of predictive psychology, making psychological bets based around pretty broad demographic assumptions that have high upside, low cost, you can actually do a lot to improve well-being and performance without over-engineering solutions. You don't have to set up a permanent daycare at your office. You can just do one day in school holidays and see how it goes. And so they're the sorts of things I would say – are the really big opportunities and we advise organisations on. When we talk about high wellbeing, high performance, it's really understanding data, understanding people, understanding how people are likely respond to external cues and putting in place bets that have high upside, low cost. And if you are engaged, you can do that kind of all the time. This means you have to be um, interested in those ideas. Well, and in fact, I mean, I, it's 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 really not 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 a strange idea to business, right? When you think about this, is almost like a continuous improvement on your the environment you create for your people, right? On on and and not assuming this net needs to be static. And we do it all the time, which I find fascinating. To your point, business does it all the time for customers, right? They uh, if we're if I'm in retail, I dress this mannequin in this set of clothes and see whether people buy it. If I arrange the tables this way, does it create? We create mini experiments all the time for customers 
also around products, right? Product development and so forth all the time. Yeah. What fascinates me is like, why do we think that this is an idea that is not kind of repeated? And I think for leaders coming out of COVID, what I would say is in getting here on my third practical piece, my first piece of advice was segment the customer. The second piece of advice is then once you've done that, look to set up experiments that have high upside, zero cost or at least very, very low downside cost. The third one then is to use the opportunity of people's change relationship to the nature of work to really look for transforming how your company runs through a series of these experiments. Because what we're seeing in most organisations is a burnt-out workforce, a huge amount of economic stress that's coming in for for a lot of our people. So our people are going to experience some some mental health challenges over the coming years as as the economy settles down and that most organisations are going to need to galvanise the workforce that they've got because turnovers have increased and attract new workforce and it's a relatively limited pool Um, for most industries. So if you think about it, if you do some of these things slightly better than your competitors, then the upside in terms of retention, in terms of focus, the upside in terms of talent attraction are enormous in what is otherwise a fairly limited pool. And you're not really doing a lot. You're just tweaking things in in that sense. Absolutely. So I have, I mean, a a quick question on this because... And this is one element that attracted me to your work early on is the work you're doing in psychological safety. And, you know, we haven't mentioned that explicitly in there, although it's it's kind of the, the implications are, are also pretty clear. But do, do you mind just saying a few things on psychological safety? Um, because I think it's fascinating what, what you do. Yeah, so this is one of the training programs we run is for leaders around psychological safety and the reason why we put it in an L&D training program is it is a learnable set of skills right and more importantly it is a learnable set of skills specifically for leaders so what we're seeing in organizations is they talk a lot about psychological safety but they don't connect it to training learning about how you have to lead differently and so what we kind of know and those you read the work of Amy Edmondson um, have a look at some of her TED Talks. There's lots of great content out there that's pretty pretty digestible. Is really there are three drivers. The, the first driver is what might be called authenticity, but it's really a sense of can I engage in solving problems in this group within this group rather than second guessing what people will think about me as I engage in the solving problems. Right? And so the level of you know psychological self-editing goes down when people are more authentic. The second kind of part is connectedness. And connectedness is do I actually like the people I'm spending time with? And secondly, do I trust that they will take my input into solving problems with good intent? Often what you describe, the easiest kind of question I, I say in kind of things is, do each of your team members feel as if the other team members have their back? Because if we don't, if we don't believe that our team members have our back, we don't take risks. And then the third part is growth. Am I willing to be vulnerable to put myself in places of discomfort to be a better version of myself? 
in in high psychologically safe teams, they're teams that like each other, they trust each other, they can be authentic because their colleagues know quite a lot of stuff about them. They know that I'm a father of three children. They know that you know, my family were refugees from Malta. So when I bring my experiences to bear, they know a lot more about me because I'm authentic and share, right? And that, that sharing goes into a DNI agenda that actually our differences as an Australian and a German who's in America are actually seen as a strength rather than a source of conflict. So those two things go together in a really powerful way. And then this third part that's actually the missing ingredient in psychological safety, which is we sit as a group in this cognitive stretch zone where I'm going to assume that every conversation between you and I is going to be one where I'm intellectually challenged. What we find when we work with teams is they think psychological safety is high authenticity and high connectedness. And what you get in those teams is massive amounts of conflict avoidance. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Because I don't want to take a risk in being growing because I don't want to, or I don't want to give you negative feedback. I don't want to have a difficult conflicting conversation with you. You're because I like you, I trust you, and I don't want to damage the relationship. What you find in high psychological safe teams is they have fierce conversations, but those conversations happen in a way where the conflict binds the team rather than tears it apart. What they do is they practice again and again and again conflicted conversations. What's really interesting when you operate and understand those conversations is they always sit at the emotional surface zone. It's always about the idea. The challenging and the conflict around the idea never dips into an emotional conflict and it never dips into an identity conflict. So what you find in teams with low psychological safety is when there's conflict, it very quickly goes into me saying, well, you would say that you're because you're German. <laughs> yes. Right? And you go, well, and you can't do anything about that now, right? I've made a global assessment and now we're in an identity conversation where you go, how dare you? What does that mean? People often say that in a funny way. Oh, that's just how Germans think, right? Or how, that's just that's just what Australians do, right? We say it in this way, but really it's about we're not going to have a conversation about an idea because we're now having a conversation about an identity. And once you're in that, the conversation dies away. You can't have a, a, a interesting growth-based conversation. So that's when we work with the teams, that's the important part. Another real implication for inclusive leaders, I think, and especially in that the ENI conversation that is so much about identity and where identity becomes the default or explanatory model through which we see other otherness. Yeah, and keep in mind, as people are really interested in psychological safety, read some of that the, the theory around it, so these are learnable skills. The other book I'd recommend people read, which is fascinating, is Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, because what it really helps people understand is how much of our behaviour is driven by these unconscious mental models. And so when I say things like, you would say that because you're German, I have a mental model of how Germans think, operate their culture that allows me a shortcut in the same way that I have a shortcut that says, you know, strawberries are going to be sweet. (laughs) I don't have to taste every strawberry to understand that the likelihood is that strawberries. So when we create these mental models that create shortcuts, that create biases, that when negative turn into racism and prejudice, for example, 
the, the starting point of all that is actually a core part of brain functioning, which is our unconscious or fast brain, spends most of its time creating shortcuts between data to create a way in which we can navigate large amounts of information without becoming cognitively overwhelmed. And that when people understand that that's not because I'm intending to do it, it's just the way the brain operates. You can therefore unwind those mental models to have a much better conversation. So those two areas I think are the most fascinating when you talk about our work around psychology and understanding how psychology influences organisational performance which is helping leaders and individuals understand this is what the brain wants to do. And if you aren't aware of it, then you're going to fall into mental traps again and again and again and again that ultimately are going to lead to bad outcomes. So I have to ask you, even though I think I can guess the answer based on what you said, but why? Why, why, do, why did this become your focus, your, your professional focus? Yeah, I, I lost a friend of mine to suicide when I was 14 year old. So I made a decision at that point in my life to to dedicate my life and career around mental health wellbeing. I specialised in suicide prevention at university, wrote a thesis around it and, and was originally going in a clinical path. I um, was going to do a clinical PhD and met a person called Jack Heath who's the founder of Reach Out. In 1997, Reach Out was the first digital mental health service in the world when we launched it. And so just went down a different kind of career path than the standard clinical one. Did my master's in public health because I was interested because of our work at Reach Out in this mix between psychology, which is fundamentally about individual behaviour and public health, which is fundamentally about group behaviour, my populations. And how do you bring those two theories together? But the work that we're now doing on high wellbeing, high performance really kind of struck me when I was CEO. I became CEO of Reach Out when I was 32. I was I served the organisation for 22 years. So CEO for 10 years. Now, I wouldn't say to people, I could have only become CEO of Reach Out. I was not well schooled in the craft of being a CEO, but I knew Reach Out very well because I helped create it. I knew, so I could become a leader of this organisation, but I couldn't become a leader of any other organisation. And so as a result, I became really fascinated by being the best leader that I could. And one of the things that struck me was actually a lot of my psychological training was fantastic in leadership. (laughs) Like, you know, understanding people, understanding emotional motivation, sitting in conflict. A lot of therapy is about sitting in conflict, sitting in intense emotions. And one of the things that I spoke about to our team, because obviously running a suicide prevention mental health organisation, our our team experienced a lot of stress. We were genuinely dealing with life and death things on a weekly basis. Because our mission was to help all young people be happy and well. And I said to her, my mission is to help get our mission outside our door. If you're not happy and well, if we're not committed to the idea that we can be happy and well, how can we demand that of vulnerable young people? Why do we... How can we set a higher expectation for them than we would ourselves? And so I said, my kind of job is about constructing an organisation where this is kind of part of it. And we had lots of conversation around mission, values, culture. You know, the idea of the the holiday club happened when I was at Reach Out. And so it was a natural extension when I went and left Reach Out to start up my own business to say, how do I kind of take that? into other organisations that you can use psychology to do better leadership that 
really came into this more succinct idea that says if we can help organisations align high wellbeing and high performance, that's great. And But also, to be honest, Jorg, it's also me understanding as a CEO, if you just talk about high wellbeing of your people, that is not a good CEO question. Right, that's a question that a CEO delegates to their head of people because fundamentally the CEO's responsibility is the performance of the business. So if you want to engage leaders, particularly senior leaders, in questions of well-being of your people without them delegating it and looking for red and green arrows going in funny directions, <laughs> then you actually have to craft it as a performance question. You have to be able to look a CEO in the eye and say, I've, I reckon I've got a way in which you can untap some of the value in your business to improve its profitability, improve its performance in a way that in many cases reduces cost. That is a good question to have for a CEO. They'll always be interested, whether it be supply chain, IT management, better purchasing. It's all about creating or looking for ways in which we can tap into value in the business. Often what we've described mental health and well-being as for leaders is, oh, this is all about a staff benefit or a welfare lens or looking after your people. And for me, that's why many leaders haven't really invested in this space enough um, in the way that, you know, a leader would spend a lot of time understanding customers. They'd spend a lot of time on product design. They'd spend a lot of time on supply chain management. What I find fascinating, and I say to leaders, is most of the value of your business is monetizing the brains of your people, right? In most organizations, that's the value of your business. Yet when you look around the table, how many of you actually understand how brains work, right? You don't understand. You don't. You wouldn't put me as saying, hey, look, I've done a little bit of, of accountancy in my small business. Make me the CFO, <laughs> right? You yes. wouldn't say, oh, I'm really passionate about the law, so make me your, make me your, your chief legal officer, <laughs> But as leaders, people quite often go, oh, you know, I know people. I'm a person. <laughs> I do people stuff all the time. And you're like, really? Like that's that's your fallback position? Yeah. You know, so what we kind of help leaders do is, no, there's a science behind this. There's a lot of rigor and research. We can help you unlock it. And the reason why your business is underperforming is because you're making decisions about your people that is contrary to science. And once they realize that, then there's a lot of value to be unlocked. You know, it's amazing how quickly time flies. So, so you know, and you gave already a lot of very practical things um, along the way for people and leaders particularly to, to do differently. Um, I just want to Thank you for this conversation. And also... That's great. Thank you. And also to, I mean, to tell you how excited I am for you to be part of, of our institute faculty and, and, and resources, actually. I think our clients will benefit a lot from what you bring to this, this way of looking at it and understanding it, specifically the idea that there is a science to be tapped, right? And it's, and, and, and it's not any more mysterious than the science we are already tapping in the for, for the benefit of our business. So it's just extending what already works that we are doing with customers, with products, to our people. And and it's 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 not mysterious. It doesn't have to be mysterious, right? No, and 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 in fact, you know, that'd be my last piece of advice that 
in terms of the work that we do, it's really spending time with leaders about how do you make better decisions around the things you're already doing, right? And how do you tap into advice and support from people like ourselves who spend all their time thinking about the science of how humans operate, right? And there's a lot of, and I'll give you a very concrete one that I'd say most businesses get wrong. A lot of businesses will be having their first offsites since the pandemic. Yes, right now, yeah. Almost all businesses massively misspend around that for one reason, which is they spend all their time getting their people to a location. They then hold it in some sort of hotel generally. That hotel often has low ceilings and often has no natural light. So we take our most important people, whack them in a room or put them in a room with low light, low sit, and that is biologically designed to reduce cognitive performance. If you were to create a space that says, let's reduce the cognitive performance of our people, you would design a conference room. (laughs) And then we then give them quite often really rich food because it's a conference. So you give them morning tea, lunch, after, you know, like people are eating six really rich meals a day full of sugar and fat. They often have alcohol at the, so you go, okay, not only putting in a room designed to minimise cognitive performance, you're now feeding them in a way that's designed to minimise cognitive performance. And then you dim the light and show them PowerPoints. <laughs> exactly. Then show them content that is overwhelming. And then you wonder why at the end of it your people are exhausted. Right? They go back to work to recover from the conference. <laughs> and they spend all their time in breaks doing emails rather than engaging with colleagues. So if you just think about you know, maybe for a, a, a large kind of team, you might like spend, say, anywhere up to 100 grand on a conference, think about flights, hotels, the whole bit. And yet, as you design every step of that way, you're designing it in a way that minimizes the benefit to the business, right? And, and my kind of challenge to leaders when they generally look at me quite sheepishly, right? Which is, would you do that in any other part of your business, right? Would you would you design if you're in retail a store where you do a big store opening but you know, close the doors 90% of the way so people only get through a narrow thing, turn all the lights down so it's really weird and scary and no one can be you, – you put all the elements together to maximise the value for the customer, to maximise the value for the business. And that's when I talk about, you know, the work that we do is really practical about high wellbeing, high performance. If you can unlock better decisions throughout your business, if you can do it according to science, then the value and the spend that you're making will have far greater benefit. And it's pretty straightforward. I would say if you're running an offsite for your people as a leader, they should feel psychologically better at the end of that offsite, not drained by PowerPoint, overwhelmed by lack of natural light, stressed because they haven't talked to their kids. And then you think about an offsite in a completely different way than perhaps a lot of leaders would. A lot of common sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's the joy. We've got all the untapped value is actually in the easy bits. That's the great thing, York. Before you <laughs> even get started, it's around content cultural transformation. And I think that's the bit, you know, you do enormously great work on the depth of cultural transformation. And we try and do that kind of work and love to do more of that work in partnership with you. I think my frustration and opportunity with organisations is we're often doing that in really difficult environmental circumstances 
And if a business is flying you and your team in to work with them, putting a, a huge investment and expense and a lot of thought, why not create the best cognitive circumstances around your involvement rather than make it really hard? And that's the bit that we love working with organisations on. Yes. And what a beautiful vision of the future, but that we need to build and co-create. Right? And, and it takes that mindset, that those questions and and also giving giving leaders the confidence that we can do this, right? In fact, you know, we're doing it already. We're just not applying it to this particular area of our business. Yeah, it's it's a series of small tweaks. It's about being thoughtful, understanding your people, being genuinely curious around changing their experiences. And what I would kind of say for leaders is it makes your job a lot more fun as well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> sure. What a benefit. Yeah. You benefit the organisational benefit in almost all circumstances where we advise organisations, the outcome is either a better use of current spend or a reduction in spend. Because we're not thinking about doing a new wellbeing strategy that costs a lot of money, we're thinking about wellbeing is baked into the daily operation of our business and therefore if we do all that better, we're really unlocking value that's trapped in the business and doing it in a way where as a leader, think about as a leader, how many times do you get to unlock value in the business where your people thank you? <laughs> that That's was true. awesome. Right? Normally you're unlocking value by, you know, looking at headcount or reducing costs. Or This is an easy one. This is one where your people will probably give you a hug at the end of it if you do it <laughs> rather than brick bats. So that I would kind of say for, for leaders, have a look at this first, see what we can do, and, um, and then, you know, a lot of other really good things will flow. Thank you, Jonah, for sharing all that with us. And there's certainly more to come. Thanks, Jorgen. Looking forward to working with you and the team. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www the inclusive leadership institute.com. Mm-hmm.